All right, would you stand with me as I read from God's very true and holy word? Uh, We do have much to be thankful for in uh, having the scripture so readily available and easily accessible to us. And as we get into the sermon text this morning, we will be speaking about the sword of the spirit, uh, which Paul tells us is the word of God. And so we can, along with Christians for centuries, if not longer, uh, respond to the reading of God's word with thankfulness. And if you so desire a verbal affirmation, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word. Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 10 through 17, each of the pieces of armor, as we uh, this morning spent specific time on the second half of verse 17. Let's hear God's word. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. That really is our topic every morning when we come together as a church, that this is God's word that we proclaim. Uh, But it feels extra clear and extra uh, important for us to, to really consider that, if we really believe that to be true, is this the word of the Lord? Is this true for us today? And as we consider this whole topic of spiritual warfare, uh, there's still one more sermon in the series where we'll be talking about prayer uh, in the next, uh, it'll be two weeks from now. Uh, But this is the last actual piece of armor that we see. And so we'll be looking at it this morning. But we've seen throughout this whole context of the armor of God, the context is spiritual warfare. Spiritual war. Now, war feels very distant to me. I've never experienced war as we know war is. And it becomes more real to us when we see it in the news, when we see the tragedies that are happening. Uh, And obviously, it's very apparent right now in Ukraine, uh, but There are wars happening more frequently than just this war that's happening right now. There's other wars that are happening right now. But war feels very distant, and it feels a little bit clearer when we see it in the news. And many of us, I hope most of us, if not all of us, have not experienced war firsthand. When I think of war, I prefer to think of, you know, games. Which is sad, really, to to compare the two. But I think of games like Battleship. You know, if you know Battleship, where you say the coordinates. Uh, but it feels very distant, even for a game about a battle, right? You can't see who you're attacking. You can't see what's going on. It's very distant. It's anything but the dark reality that war is. 
It's a real face-to-face -face reality as we think about war, even modern war, but even more so as we think about the context that Paul is writing into the Ephesians. And this is the first offensive weapon, explicitly offensive weapon, uh, that is given to us in the armor of God. Certainly, every single one requires action, uh, but don't confuse action with offense. The entire context of this whole thing is that we would be able to stand, to be able to stand our ground, to defend ourselves against these spiritual attacks. But here we get a sword, the sword of the Spirit. It's the first offensive weapon that Paul gives to us, or that Paul writes about, that God gives to us. Now I want to argue this morning that this sword is offensive, but it's also defensive. We'll, we'll get through it, uh, and we'll consider it in a few different ways. But first I want to consider what, just so we kind of have an image of, uh, in our mind what we're talking about here. There's a few different words for swords that the Bible uses. Uh, this one is most likely a short uh, Roman sword that Paul's alluding to. It was worn high up as part of in the belt, that girdle that we talked about in the second week in this series, but uh, the belt of truth. We'll see lots of connections here between God's word and the belt of truth. Uh, but it was worn on this belt. It was worn high up so it wouldn't uh, bang into your legs as you were running and it wouldn't uh, inhibit you as you were moving. It was worn high up and it was your last ditch effort. When everything else had been worn out, it was your defensive and offensive tool. So don't imagine the six-foot Aragorn or Braveheart sword for just storming the gates. It's that, like, hey, I'm out of all my options here. My door-sized shield is gone. Uh, my javelin has been thrown. Maybe my big sword is just too big in this small, intimate context. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, you know, we're not, like, Legolas, you know, doing close combat with bow and arrow. I know that's cool in a movie, but I don't imagine that's terribly effective in real battle. So all of our options are worn out, and we have this one short sword that comes out for close combat, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose warfare. That's sort of the context that Paul gives us as he uses this word for this short sword. The enemy is on our doorstep. More than on our doorstep, he is right in our face. So this paints a clear picture that it is different than, than the, the warfare we would imagine, that we would prefer to throw out coordinates. You know, B6, and if, you know, all things go bad, you, you know, your battleship gets sunk. That's not the context of this spiritual battle that Paul is talking about. It's not even metaphorical. He's talking about a real battle. And he reminds us, as we read, that this battle is not against just flesh and blood. But that doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's totally ethereal or metaphorical. It's very real against a very real opponent who is beyond our capabilities to fight on our own. The devil can and will play dirty. He will get in the trenches with you and attack. He will attack us where we're most vulnerable. And so we need this last-ditch effort, this short sword to come out, both for defense and for offense. But this is the grim reality of spiritual war that we see in verse 12. Verse 12 says uh, in chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we considered the first week in the series, that isn't necessarily Paul you know, giving a hierarchy of demons or anything like that, but it seems very emphatic that we are up against a formidable opponent. That's the context. But look what it's sandwiched between. 
Verse 10 and 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So that's the setup. Then, oh boy, big warfare. This is bad news, it seems like. But then immediately after, he reiterates the same point, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So that's the context. That's, that's the whole stage that's set for us that we need a sword. Again, we've considered this each step of the way as well. That we don't pick and choose, oh, I want that piece of armor today, I want that piece of armor. Even if we think of this short sword being a last-ditch thing, that's not how we think about the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. It all needs to work together. It is one unit of armor. That this sword of the Spirit specifically, we see that it is God's gift to us. And so our big idea from Ephesians chapter 6 The second half of verse 17 is God's word is our weapon in battle. God's word is our weapon in battle. I know what you're thinking, Aaron, super obvious. You need to make that big idea extra big idea-ish. Well, it is pretty self-explanatory. It is pretty self I think this is the, you know, I talked about the neglected. We, We never talk about the belt of truth. Maybe we talk about it, but we don't actually think how exciting is a belt. We don't talk about gospel shoes, you know. But we do talk about the sword of the Spirit. So in one sense, it is self-explanatory. We're aware of what this thing is. But I want to consider how it is a little more comprehensive than maybe we think about it at times when we glance at it just one-off. Certainly not less than just taking it at face value. But I've been very much encouraged this week as I've been studying this passage to see how powerful God's word is and how kind God is to give it to us as a sword. And so I want to look through this Sword of the Spirit topic through two lenses. I've already said them. The sword for defense and the sword for offense. Defense, offense. All right, so first, defense. Satan's number one goal is to have us fall. He does this in different ways at different times, and we've seen this through each piece of armor. That's the goal, is to get through the armor, to have us lose our shield, to uh, to, to attack us in every possible way. That he wants to have us fall. And a direct way that he does, us, does this is to have us forget the promises of God. He wants you to forget all that God has done for you and is doing for you. And all that he's promised to do. He wants you to forget God's word. He wants you to forget God's word. And so again, we've talked about this a few different times when we see satan's first attack on humanity was adam and eve in the garden he satan comes and he's truth twisting and it boils down to that tactic to have them forget god's word what does he say did did he really say did god really say and so for us it's the perfect example of exactly what not to do exactly what not to do Now, we probably don't need an example. We just need to look at our own lives. But it is the the, the quintessential example of of Satan's attack against God's word, an assault on truth, an assault on God's word, his promises. But we see Adam and Eve fail. God had given them his word. He gave them clear instructions. Yet this assault on God's word, on God's promises, hits its mark. Adam and Eve went swordless into a battle. They forgot and ignored what God had said. Now we've considered that this morning, or we've considered that multiple times, and we're going to keep considering it, foundational passage, Genesis chapter 3, 
And you can read it this afternoon and look at the ways that Satan worked and twisted uh, words and, and manipulated truth and came close to the truth but didn't say the truth. And he brought humanity to this, this horrible place where they and we rebel against God. But this morning I want to consider even more a, a contrasting case study. There we know what not to do. Don't do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Don't fall for those lies. Don't listen to those lies or those assaults on God's word. But a contrasting case we find with Jesus himself. Shocking, I know. But he gives us the perfect example of what to do when we are assaulted in this way, when God's word is assaulted. And so we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there if you would like. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is where Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan comes, he taunts, and he tempts. And his aim is the same, to have Jesus forget the, the truths and the promises of God. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Of course, much could be said, multiple sermons could be preached on this text. But for us this morning, it is an example of what Adam and Eve should have done. What we need to do, we need to remember the promises of God. We need to take up the sword of the Spirit, the sword of God's word, when the attacks come. It is our best and really only defense. And so we see Satan attack Jesus in this way, attack the word. And three times we see Jesus replies, it is written. Jesus replies to an assault on God's word with a counter-assault of God's word. That is his defense strategy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on God's word. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall not put the God, your God to the test, and it is the Lord your God that you should fear and serve. Those are both from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Jesus quotes scripture back at Satan. We even see, you might have noticed, there's four it is written in this section. Satan even tries to twist and manipulate scripture against Jesus. He does the same thing he did to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? So he says, it is written. Or isn't it written? He assaults Jesus and makes it that same exact tactic. And it's the same tactic that happens in our life. But Jesus, of course, rightly handles the word. He rightly wields his sword. That is the word of God. When the promises and commands of God are assaulted, the true 
promises and commands of God are the only defense. They're our only defense. Now I wonder if we look at those two contrasting stories, Adam and Eve in the garden, and if we look at Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness, starving, hungry. Adam and Eve in the garden have everything they need. And yet they're the ones who fall. Jesus remains strong. He is anchored to God's word. He wields the sword. They don't even have the sword. They're not listening at all to what God had said. Which one of those two contrasting stories is more relatable in your own life? Which one are we more likely to do? Are we more likely to take up that sword or are we chucking that sword and and hoping for the best? What is your response when Satan attacks? When, you know, it's not just distant anymore. This is close combat. There's an assault on God's word. Does the sword come out or does it stay sheathed? Too often I think we try to go into these situations where God's word is assaulted and we don't even try to make a defense. We don't reflect on the truths of God's revealed will. So we don't even try to defend ourselves. When we fall, we fail again and again. But maybe we do try to resist, but we see pretty quickly it's not a sword or God's word that is our sword that we're fighting with. We attempt to flee from sin for all the wrong reasons. We hate sin because we would hate what it would mean for someone to find us out. If shame is your sword, it's no better than those flammable shields that we talked about a few weeks ago. Nothing exposes the fact that I have a long way to go in understanding the gospel than when I face temptation like this. Does this resonate? Our shame prevents us from grounding ourselves in God's word and flying to him when we need rescue. That is a lie from Satan. God knows everything. God knows everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly. And the beauty of the gospel is that he doesn't love you less because of your sin. He sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner. That's the hope of the gospel. But we fail to ground ourselves in God's word when Satan comes close combat and the assaults come, we fall right into his hand. We fall for a distortion of the hope that we have in the gospel. And so we can and should rest in the fact that God knows our weakness. God knows our frailty. He knows our failings. And he loves us anyway. That is why he came to rescue us. That's why he sent his son to come. Not to just make a way for us to rescue ourselves but to make the way for us to be rescued by his grace. That's the hope of the gospel. And so when these attacks come, when these assaults come, when when we're tempted to doubt the promises of God, we need to rest in those same promises all the more. And when those attacks come, we combat them by remembering the calling that we're called to as Christians. We can look at Ephesians chapter 4 as, again, another case study for what this can and should look like in our life. What it looks like to take on this new life in Christ when Satan tries to tempt you to do otherwise. And so when you're tempted to fall into that same dark cesspool of sin that you promised you never would again, you need to remember to not, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, not to walk in the futility of your mind 
not to harden your heart and become darkened in your understanding. We need to remember what he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Right? That, that there's clear commands. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We need to remember that that is God's word for us. And we need to give ourselves the reminder each day of what comes immediately after, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. So when this assault comes where we think, oh, you know, I've, I've fallen again. It's okay, though. I'll get myself out of it. I'll be okay. I've given myself up to this impurity. Well, that's not the way you learned Christ. We need God's word, the sword, to come out and defend ourselves against this assault on truth. That these assaults, that this, this twisted way of living and thinking is right some way. That's not the way you learned Christ. When you're tempted to lie at work or school or at home, you forget or choose to ignore what comes just a few verses later. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When you're tempted to anger or bitterness, you're letting it rule your heart. Paul says explicitly in verse 27 that you give an opportunity to the devil. I don't know, that verse as we went through Ephesians feels much clearer to me now that we've spent so much time considering spiritual warfare. That when we let sin and anger and bitterness fester in our hearts, that is a prime breeding ground for an attack of Satan. That this assault would come. It's an opportunity for the devil. When you steal something that isn't yours or you hoard something that was never yours to begin with, you justify it in some way, shape, or form. You forget or ignore God's words. Again, just a few verses later in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. When you gossip, when you slander, you forget or ignore the verse that comes right after. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then all that is summarized a few verses later, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It's emphatic, it's clear. God's word has made it clear, yet we fall and we fail. And we fall for Satan's lies when we start to justify these things, when we think it's okay to steal, when we justify the lie that we told, when we justify the dark places that we go on the internet. Every time we make one of these errors, these major blunders, it's rebellion against God and we're falling for a lie. We're falling for an assault on the very truth of God's word. And Satan will use our stumbling to have us forget again the beauty of the gospel. He may remind you of the absolute weight of your sin as you read through such a convicting chunk of verses like Ephesians chapter 4 and you read through, you might be like, I am an utter failure. He's going to make you feel like there's no point in running to God. How could God accept me as his child? I have absolutely fallen and failed. Well, you know, if you know the gospel, that is not true. That is an assault on God's word. Maybe he'll try the opposite tactic. Maybe he'll try to convince you that you really are a pretty good person compared to, you know, everybody else. That maybe that this sin is not so grievous of an assault it's not it's not that bad we see in first john 
chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. God is not a liar. Say that again. God is not a liar. Satan is the father of lies. And so the sword that we need for active defense is to cut back, pun intended, the lies and see the truth that yes, we are sinners. But no, God has not forsaken us. God's promises are true that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Satan's MO is to assault these truths. But God gives us his word as a defense against these lies. And so what does this mean? Super practically. It means that we need to lean on and learn God's word. He's given us his word. We need to know it. Our sword does no good on a shelf at home. It does no good when it stays in its sheath. But I fear too many of us have left our Bibles on the shelf or in the sheath for far too long. Charles Spurgeon says it in typical Spurgeon fashion, very poignantly. He doesn't pull punches. He says, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Ew, that's... That's rough. There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. I have such a clear memory. If you've heard me share my testimony before, you'll know what I'm talking about. But such a clear memory when I personally was wallowing in self-pity. I was falling for Satan's lies that I was an absolute failure. I was letting depression creep in. And my wife, Mariah, gave me a metaphorical, hear me, metaphorical, smack in the side of the head. And said straight up, are you even reading the Bible? Are you even reading your Bible? She didn't say this because reading my Bible would be some magic wand and make all my problems go away. She didn't say that to you know, offend me that I hadn't ticked the box of my daily Bible reading plan. She said that because she could see I was fighting a war I could never win absolutely swordless. I was forgetting the truths of God's word. The darkness of Satan's lies were crowding out the hope that I had in Christ. I couldn't even be bothered to take out my sword that God had given to me for that very purpose. That's the hope of God's word. And so we need to read it. We need to know it. Again, it's so much more than a tick box. It's more than a religious assent. It is God's word for us today. George Mueller, who I've quoted recently, he once spoke near the end of his life. Uh, I think he thought he was going to die soon when he gave this presentation, but he lived much longer. But he spoke to some younger believers, and his, his advice hinged on what it means to find joy in Christ and how that comes from being saturated in God's word. It says, the scriptures must be regularly read. They are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder it, especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. 
I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I've been doing this for 47 years. He wasn't 47. I wasn't saying that's when he thought he was going to die. He, he became a Christian later in life. I've been doing this now for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus, my peace and joy have increased more and more, end quote. Mueller was no stranger to trial and affliction. Just look at his life. Read about this man. Yet his faith was grounded in the sovereign goodness of God. And how did he grow in knowing that sovereign goodness and faithfulness? Through grounding his life in God's word. And so if we leave our Bibles sheathed up or collecting dust on a shelf, we stand no chance in this defense that we need to make. It's not a fight that we can win by just ignoring it. Ah, it'll go away. It's not a problem. No. And it's not a fight that can be won by bringing our own answers, that somehow our own merit comes to the fight. It is like uh, going into a sword fight with fists. You know, we don't stand much of a chance. This is a fight that God has given his word to us for as a defense. But we need to know it and we need to use it. So I want to ask you that same question that Mariah said to me very poignantly in our kitchen. I was sitting there like a slouch on our countertop. Are you even reading your Bible? Are you even reading your Bible? I mean it. Because you must. You simply must. I know it's not as simple as just letting your eyes, you know, see black words on a white page. That's not what I'm talking about. I know it's not as easy as just ticking that box. If that's all it is, religious duty, that's not what I'm talking about. Don't hear me wrong. But please come talk to me if that's what it feels like for you. Like, oh man, I, I hear you, Aaron. I believe what you're saying. I'm with you. It's the word of God. I know I need it, but it's just not working that way. It's not working that way for me. I don't really know what to do. My eyes are going over the words. I don't know what it means for my life. Please come talk to me. I've been there. I would love to encourage you in it give you tools that you could use in it, partner you up with someone that has an equal love and desire to be nourished and fed and strengthened by being able to take up this sword when you need it. Right? It's like we've been given a sword. Imagine God shows up and he says, hey, listen, you need this. You're gonna need this sword. You're gonna need, I promise you, you need it now. You don't know. The, the, the assault could come any day. The, the intruders could come. You need this sword, so be ready. And we're like, ah, right on. Okay, that's, that's good. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's, maybe I'll even make it decorative. I'll, I'll hang it up on a wall and it'll look good. That's what we're doing if we're neglecting reading this defense weapon that's been given to us. And we can't do that. We need to be able to take up this sword. It is your best defense when the attacks come. And so God's word is not only for defense. As I promised, we would talk about this sword for offense. And so here's our second lens that we look through, our second point this morning, the sword for offense. Now, this almost doesn't need to be said. It's really two sides of the same coin when we think about it. But I do think it's helpful to consider. But it's like anything. If you were talking to a hockey player and they were like, oh, what position do you play? Defense. Okay, right on. You want to come play defense? And then you're 
you, you're playing, and then they pick up the puck, and then you're like, pass. And they're like, well, no, I, just, I only stop people from coming. I don't contribute to any offense. It's, that doesn't make sense, right? It's, it's, a, it's a two-way street. Your position might be one thing. Your posture might be one thing. Even where you stand might be one thing. But there's an offense and defense going on. And I don't know a lot about sword fighting. Never been personally in a sword fight. I don't know if anyone has. If you have, quite the story, I'm sure. But I've never been in a sword fight. But I would imagine it's very similar. You know, oh, I brought my defense sword today. I don't know, I don't know what to do. I can't attack. Well, no, this is two things. It is meant to block and to attack. And so I think it's helpful for us to consider what it means to be offensive. Hear me, don't hear me wrong. Not offensive, offensive with our sword. Again, this whole context of Ephesians, this chapter 6, is defense, that we would stand against the schemes of the devil. The whole posture is defensive. And there's no indication, there's no instruction that our call is to go and take a solo mission to storm the gates of hell with our newfound armor. But still, this sword is both defensive and offensive. And so the same truths that we ground ourselves in in this defense is also the same truth that silences our accuser. Satan hates the gospel. Hates it. He knows that he is losing and that he will lose. But he wants to take you down with him. And so God's word for us is the cutting proclamation that Christ is victorious. It's the proclamation to ourselves and to one another that God has redeemed humanity. This is the sword of God. This is God's word, not the sword of the spirit, not the sword of ourselves. And so it's the Holy Spirit who makes the sword powerful and effective. It's the offense we need, the spirit-empowered word of God. One commentator summarizes it very clearly, saying the church's resource in spiritual war is God's very word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. This is not uh, again, I emphasize the application. You've got to read your, the word. You've got to study it. But we need the Holy Spirit to you know, illuminate the word for us, to, to inscribe it on our hearts and to change us from the inside out. It's the sword of the Spirit. New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass, and it might be the last time I get to say Snodgrass, so, uh, once we finish Ephesians. Uh, but he writes this, Throughout Scripture, God's word is the instrument by which his power is shown. Hear that again. Throughout scripture, God's word is the instrument by which his power is shown. God's word is his power. And his power is the only hope we have in defense or in offense. Paul uses this term, God's word, or uh, which is the word of God, he says. Uh, and he uses here different words uh, to, to explain this. And in this passage, he uses the less common Greek word referring to God's word. Usually, this word that he uses refers to teaching, or specifically to the gospel. And so Paul describes the gospel as the good news of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. What is this good news of salvation? Well, it's what we've already talked about this morning, that we have rebelled against God, all of humanity. We've sinned, but God, in his mercy, knew that, knew that we would fail, knew that we couldn't be good enough. And so he sent his only son into the world to live a sinless life, the life that we could never live. Right? We see he demonstrates what it really means to take up that sword when the trials and temptations come. And yet Jesus died for our sin. He died for the sins of humanity. He died for the sin of those who would turn from their sin and trust 
in him alone for salvation. So that when God looks at sinful humanity, he would see Christ in all his righteousness. And when he looks at Christ on that fateful day, when Jesus took all of our sin on himself, on the cross, he would, he would look at Christ and, and all of our sin would fall on him. We see that God's word is his power, as Snodgrass reminded us. That's the instrument by which his power is shown. That sword of God's wrath fell on Christ so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. The word of God that we have violated, that violation falls on Christ and not on us. That is the great exchange that is the gospel. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeating death. That yes, judgment had fallen. Yes, the wrath of God fell on him, but the wrath of God was satisfied. Sin and death was defeated. It was definitive. It was final. And for us, it's a call for us to respond. And maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But I beg you to consider the hope that is the gospel, that if you would turn from your sin, turn from your rebellious ways and trust in Christ alone for salvation, we can find real and utter hope. That is the gospel. In a few of Paul's letters, he reiterates this a few different ways. Chapter ones of a lot of his letters have some gospel punches. And so Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God for salvation for all humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 says, The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. The gospel is our hope. The gospel equals the power of God. Oh, I lied. Snodgrass, he's got another quote. Snodgrass, again. The gospel, empowered by the Spirit, is the means by which the well-armed Christian is protected and empowered for life. This is central to our understanding of the sword of the Spirit, central to our understanding of the Word of God, central to our understanding of the gospel. It matters for us very much that the sword can only be affected either, effective either offensively or defensively if it actually is the sword of the Spirit, if it actually is the Word of God, if it actually is the gospel. Augustine, or Augustine, if you're American, says this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like. It is not the gospel that you believe, but yourself. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So this matters very much because I fear too many of us live as though we think that the sword that God's given to us is some antique piece of weaponry. We think, man, it's 2022. There's gotta be a more modern piece of warfare we can have. There's got to be something uh, new, modernized, contextual. Use whatever word you want. It's got to be better in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's more politically correct. I don't know, whatever it is. But this new gospel is no gospel at all. There's nothing good about that good news. You don't need some modernized, contextual thing. You need God's word. God's word is his power. 
So we fall into the trap of thinking that we need something new, something different, thinking that we can somehow do more through it, but we turn out having nothing. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need this sword. The spirit-empowered word of God, we need it for defense and offense against the devil's schemes. We need it for offense for the sake of our own souls to battle against sin to cut us to the heart when we need cutting right it's like the sword of the spirit is the scalpel of the spirit we need it for the sake of our own souls and we need it for the sake of the world who desperately needs this gospel hope and so thinking of the sword of the spirit in this way is more comprehensive than just one kind of item against personal attacks. That we who were dead in our sin have been cut to the heart through the Holy Spirit's work and through the power of the gospel in and through God's word. It is God's word that has the power to save souls, not what we say about God's word. And this is extremely important in the context of our own hearts fleeing from sin as we talked about. But also it's extremely important in the context of evangelism. It's through God's word that we share the hope of the gospel. And it is the hope of the gospel that we need to share. Not what we can say that's you know, slick enough or uh, you know, precise enough. We can't save anyone with our eloquence. It's the gospel that saves. This is a spiritual battle on its own. But it's a time for us as Christians where we need to actively take up the sword that is the gospel, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God to do what only God can do through the power of his Holy Spirit. And church, this is a direct call for us too, that we need to be a word-driven church. That's kind of a catchphrase thing. It, it needs to be more than a catchphrase. We need to be a word-driven church. If we build our ministry on anything else, we were doomed to fail. There is no power in it. We could have the most killer music. We do have very talented musicians. But we could have like the, the best music ever. We could have the warmest, friendliest greeters who just give you the right amount of conversation that whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you leave happy. We could have that, oh, that perfect you know, greeter. We could have the comfiest seats, which I know we don't. We could have the most engaging sermons that are funny, they're short, and they're entertaining. I don't know if mine are any of those three. We could have the perfect small group structure that gives us just the right amount of engagement but doesn't disrupt our lives or ask too much of us. Friend, if we build our ministry on anything other than God's word, we are doomed to fail. It is powerless, utterly powerless. We've been given a sword, and we've traded in that sword for pool noodles and pillows. And we're going into a very real battle with woefully inadequate tools. We've all done pool noodle sword fights before. We've all, you know, had a pillow fight growing up. 
The thing is, our opponent doesn't stop. We are bringing the wrong weapon into battle. And that's the reality of spiritual warfare, that it is a reality. We need the sword of the Spirit if we have any hope of the Spirit working in and through our church. We need to be grounded in God's word if we want the roots of the gospel to go deep for us, if we want to be able to to withstand the storm. We need to be driven by the gospel if we care at all for our own souls or care about those that we love who need that gospel hope. If we don't, we individually, we as a church and our hearers will get tired, has no holding power. Satan's schemes will succeed. And rather than taking up the sword that's been given to us for defense and for offense, we'll settle for playing with pool noodles and having pillow fights. It's fun for a few minutes, but it's a cheap substitute when we think of what we desperately need and what has been graciously given to us. And this for us, I think, is the crux of the issue. We don't know that we have a problem. Right? If we have this, this passage, this, these truths come over us like water off a duck's back, we don't know that we have a problem. We've been given a sword and we don't think we really need it. This is why we don't read our Bibles. This is why we fall for Satan's schemes. This is why we don't share the hope that we have. This is why we build our church on pragmatic silver bullets and not on Christ. We have far too low of a view of our own need. And we have far too low of a view of the power of God's word. And so we need to take God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, at his word. And take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And again, I'll reiterate this. We need to know and share God's word for this to happen. That's how we take up the sword. If it lives like a sword hung on the wall as a a dust collector on the shelf or as decoration, even on our belts, might look like we've got it all together, might look like we're word-driven, might look like we're ready to whip that sword out, but it might just be there for decoration. I have some family heirloom. I don't know which great-great-great-grandfather. I have this sword, an old military sword, and it's part of his dress uniform. It's pretty cool looking, but it's good for absolutely nothing. It's like just cheap, mild, soft steel, and it's all etched and beautiful. It looks great. But I, again, fear too many of us that even are letting this go over, you know, our backs. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, sword of spear. Sounds good. I'm all, I'm all for it. It's right here. See, it's on my belt. That we're fighting with this decorative thing that, that isn't a real weapon when we desperately need it. So we can't leave it hung on the wall. We can't leave it as a dust collector on the shelf. We can't leave it hitched to our belt and not willing to unsheathe it. We disobey this command and we ignore this gift that God has given to us in the sword of the Spirit. But that's good news for us today. That God does not stay silent. He's given us his very word, his very true word. That is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we ask for your help as we are fickle and frail and we fall and we fail. God, I pray that you would help us to take up this sword, that by the power of your spirit, 
you would work in our hearts to grow in our love for your word, in our understanding of your word, and that it wouldn't stay on a shelf, that it wouldn't stay hitched to our belts, but that we would trust in you and the power of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, the word made flesh. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.